Joel Harrison with the Say What You Mean podcast. We're talking today with Nir Felder, guitarist from New York. I want to mention also that Nir is part of the faculty at this year's Alternative Guitar Summit Camp up in Big Indian, New York, June 11th through 15th. Other teachers are Osnoy, Mark Lachieri, David Gilmore, and myself. Please check us out at alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com. Welcome, everybody. We're here with Nir Felder, a guitar player who has been in New York for how long, Nir? I think 12 years. 12 years. Thereabouts. And Nir, I would say, is one of the younger people that we've had on the podcast, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because I've got an assortment of really great players who are closer to my age. Remind me how old you are. I'm 35. So 35 to me is pretty young, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, although you've got a lot of years in the trenches. So let's just talk about a, a little bit about what you do. So when I think about your playing, I think about some combination of Stevie Ray Vaughan and John Schofield and some kind of modern approach to harmony that I can't quite pinpoint because your lines are quite original and so talk about that for a second when you make harmony in your lines where are you getting those from that's such a cool question and uh, very observant of you because I guess I, I talk about Stevie Ray sometimes when people ask me about influences but um, it always seems to surprise people so I don't know if you heard heard that or if you just realized it which is cool uh, if you did because he's kind, he was kind of my number one guy like I, when I started playing I loved Hendrix and I loved Clapton but when I heard Stevie Ray it kind of blew me away in, in a in just this kind of surge of inspiration that you know I had to figure out what he was doing and what that was all about and I still listen back to it and it, it hasn't really aged for me it's still like that I feel like a little kid when I hear him play and it's that kind of flow and that momentum and, and the effortlessness of it and the, the, the you can tell that he's kind of channeling it you know, it's the kind of, he's so original, but it feels like his, the self is erased a little bit. Like, it's just kind of flowing through him. So that's really cool to me. Like, how do you get a piece of that? That's like the magic.
those other guys that you mentioned, Sko, of course, and the more modern players, that they have that too. But when I hear Stevie Ray, it's, there's something just magical about it. For me, it was like the, the yes. spark. So I love I love checking him out again. And I feel like the the jazz stuff that I came to later, like I still kind of filter it through that lens a little bit maybe of like being a little kid again and hearing Stevie Ray Vaughan and hearing the the big picture stuff about his playing. Like not necessarily talking about the notes and stuff, but the the flow of it and the dynamics and the, the feel of it and the way it makes you feel as a listener. So I feel like that stuff seeped in. I hope it did, but, you know, it still inspires me. Well, the thing that's striking me about what you're saying, if I could sum it up, it's the visceral way that he plays. It, it envelops the space with this total commitment and this huge sound yeah. and this feeling that he's living every note. Yeah, it's like church or something, you know, it's like, I don't know, I feel like the stuff you hear as a kid doesn't really leave you, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes we we take these other paths, um, and sometimes it involves a lot of, like, you know, hiding what you really love because you think you're supposed to be doing something else. But other times, it just gets filtered through the lens of adulthood, you know, in whatever way. But when you hear that stuff that really got you as a kid, it still kind of still kind of does, you know. Oh yeah, but weren't you born too late to see him live? Totally. Yeah. Totally it was. Cause I saw him a few times, and once before he was famous, and um, I was standing right in front of his amp, and I almost went deaf. Wow. But I think it was worth it. <laughs> I want to get those stories from you after this <laughs> podcast for sure. Well, okay, so how does, you know, a lot of us started out playing blues and playing rock and have tried to figure out how to keep that whole while moving into more uh, advanced harmony and rhythmic stuff. So I'm going to get back to an original question, your harmony then. So how did you come up with your approach to harmony? I, I guess I'm going to try to answer both those those points in, in one kind of probably uh, not straightforward answer, but I'll do my best. But I, I kinda, I'm of that generation where it was like just starting to be okay to mix things up a little bit more. And I, I still felt the pressure of like, oh no, you can't do that if you're gonna play jazz this is what you do not that you can't play a strat no 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 and I had to push back against that a lot but now I see that it's totally it's become fine no one would ever think to question you but when I was a kid it was just like it was that middle period of like people were starting to push the boundaries but it still wasn't okay hmm. you know what I mean yes so I think the the way I kind of ended up playing the way I play was through like quite a bit of stubbornness and quite a bit of, like I always tell my students um, that they should be uh, open to criticism, of course, because you find some, some people who just don't want to hear it and it's to their detriment. But at the same time, I tell them, you know, if I tell you or any of your teachers tell you something that you just really don't agree with, that you know in your heart is not right for you, you shouldn't take that advice. Uh, and I, I say that from a place of personal experience with it because when I was a kid like I said people were telling me you can't play this guitar you can't play that way and I only got through it 
due to, you know, being stubborn and kind of saying to myself, like, I know this is not the right advice for me. I know it's coming from a good place. It's just not right for me. So harmonically, um, to get back to that, I, I think it's just a mix of like that, that trying to get to that visceral place, but then also having studied jazz harmony and kind of knowing a bit more about it than I did when I was a kid. And, uh, we can get more specific, I guess. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to put into words, for sure. Yeah. Well, let's let me put this another way. So, so as far as harmony goes, when we talk about jazz harmony, of course, that's a big enough subject right there. But have you gotten deep into any classical music, or did, when you went to school, did you, you know, take a conventional sure. approach? harmony yeah and, you know you I was a, a classical composition major for a period I, I couldn't finish it because I really just wanted to play but there was a moment where I thought maybe I'll get this degree and take all these conducting classes and See, I kind of wanted to do that guitar being you know instead of chopping it up into little sections like you know this is position number one and this is position number two or this is the G position and this is the E position which um, a lot of my uh, teachers tried to get me into when I was when I was a kid learning and I, I couldn't really figure out how to make music with it and now I look back and I'm like oh okay now I can kind of understand where that's coming from and do a thing with it but I had to learn in a much more like uh, I don't even know what you would call it. Like, I, I just looked at the guitar, tried to find a way to see the guitar as one thing without any positions. Like, really, early, I'd only been playing for about a year, but I knew I knew the pentatonic scale was kind of magical in that, you know, position that we all learn at first. But beyond that, like, playing major scales in that three-note-per-string way or position, I couldn't make any music with it. So I had to figure out how to make it work for myself, and it was very much kind of like going along a string, like playing on one string at a time, and figuring out how the guitar was laid out that way instead of like these chopped up positions. Right. And I think harmonically, it just kind of influenced the way I ended up playing. Yeah. So what is your process as a composer? What do you set out to do when you write a tune? I think I have to have some idea of what the tune is before I sit down at an instrument or with a piece of paper. I have to know what it is that I want more or less and it usually starts with like a um, 
an idea like, oh, this would be cool if this happened. You know, I'm picturing some sort of song where the bass is playing up high and the guitar is playing low chords and the drums has like some sort of static pattern. That could be like a tune. And then I have to figure out a way to execute that. And then of course it comes out different than I intended, but it might be cool. Um, so, cause if I just sit down and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to write, sometimes it's not very productive. You know, it's just kind of fishing around for waiting for the inspiration to come. Sometimes the inspiration just comes, you know, you play something and you're like, wow, that's great. Let me go flesh that out. But most of the time I kind of need to know what I'm doing going in. Select your own piece that, that has that kind of angular quality to it. Cause I, some of your pieces are very lyrical mm -hmm. and either modal or involve just really beautiful, simple harmony. And some are quite jagged and full of rough edges and leaps. Yeah. And, and I, I want to talk about both because I, I really value both. Maybe I'll just improvise something. Yeah, just, that know. sounds good. I'm just plugged direct into a little champ amp. Question. Or musicians at all, not just guitarists. Musicians at all. Uh, well, start with guitar players, I guess. The guys that were um, just a little bit older than me, like five or so years, that's that's like Mike Moreno, Lage Lund, um, Lina Lueke. Those guys were kind of like, when I was still in college, they were already in New York doing stuff and playing great. And uh, Mike is still one of my favorites. You know, he's just, they all are. But Mike just blows me away. He's so fantastic. Uh, above that would be like guys like Kurt and Kurt Rosewinkle, Brad Shepik, Steve Cardenas, who I definitely heard on record. And then a little bit than that is you know Pat and Sco and uh, Bill Frizzell. You know, and I kind of at this point I, I I know all those guys that were my heroes, and uh, they're all really cool people. You know, so it's been a real joy to get to meet and uh, hang and sometimes play with some of these guys and uh, it's been awesome yeah they're, they're all super inspiring and talk about the rhythm sections that you use what are you looking for when you put a group together that's a good question um for me because I came up you know kind of listening to blues and pop and rock music uh and then got into jazz later I think one of the things that stuck is that like 
you gotta play the song. That's like, it's not about taking an awesome solo if it doesn't, isn't, you know, a great rock and roll solo is like part and parcel of the song. You can't separate it out. It is part of the song. And, uh, and the blues, it's like if you're not playing the emotive part of it, you're not playing the blues. You're just playing the scale, the licks, whatever. So bring that into jazz and into the music that I compose. I, I still want to hear the song. I want people to be focused on that and not on playing whatever awesome, incredible stuff that they'll obviously play. But, you know, to take it to kind of a deeper place where it kind of serves, what is this song that we're playing? What's it about? You know? And it's instrumental, so it's abstract, but you can tell the guys that kind of do that and the people that don't. So that's a big part of it. Um, Drums-wise, you know, same thing. Like, I, I kind of... I like guys that are listening and interacting, but also have a great pocket, you know? Uh, I've been using this guy, Jimmy McBride, who's wonderful. Uh, before that, I used Nate Smith and Mark Juliana, who I still really, really love to play with and listen to. Uh, and I think those guys do that. You know, they put the music first, they put the song first, they listen, they support, you know. And same with bass, Matt Pendon, Orlando the Fleming, those guys do that so well. Yeah. Uh, big ears, big pocket. Yeah. Know, great feel. Yeah. Great sound. They sound, they have, all those people have, have great sounds too on the drums as well. Those guys all have a great sound, you know. Yeah. So yeah. that, those, those qualities to me stand out as like the first thing, you know definitely beyond like playing a bunch of crazy stuff which everybody can do nowadays <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it seems like well, that yeah. way doesn't it yeah so obviously as part of your education you learned a ton of jazz tunes are there any that are kind of your go-to favorites and maybe you play a chorus yeah man i you know i've been playing the same tunes forever and now i'm trying to break out of it and, and widen the repertoire um sure
something That's like a, that. Yeah. That was fantastic. Thank you. So, um, you teach a lot, and you teach at the new school. I teach at the new school, yeah. And I'm curious if you see any trends in the new guitar players coming up, and if there's certain things you feel you have to say over and over again that would be useful to younger listeners who are checking this Man, out. Man, the cats are getting better and better and better and better, which That's is crazy. They, they know a ton of tunes. Everyone can play, for the most part, and play very well. Um, you know, one thing I see that can be disturbing is um, some some young guys feel, especially college kids, you know, uh, feel some sort of entitlement to a career. And that's usually, this is not something that I see in the better players. The better players that have a lot of stuff together are, you know, you know, just like you and me. They're stoked to be doing what they're doing, and they just want to be as good at it as possible. And that's the reward. But uh, around some of the, the people who aren't better players, I, I don't know what to attribute it to, but it's like they definitely feel like they're owed something by their owed gigs or their owed uh, work in a career. And it unfortunately just doesn't work like that. You have to really love it, and that's what you're there to do it for. And you have to be really good. And then, you know, all that stuff will come if you, if you love it enough and if you care enough. But uh, it doesn't just happen because you paid for it or because, you know. <laughs> And, and that, that is a trend that I, I have seen occasionally, um, enough to call it a trend. Definitely not amongst the better players. Yeah. Why do you think players are getting better at a younger age? And when we say better, we realize that there's a lot of things that go into playing well. There's heart and soul and commitment and uh, the experience that comes from living. And then there's also the, the sheer command of the instrument, which... I agree with you. Uh, uh, I subbed for your class, and and I was kind of amazed at a couple yeah. of those students. Yeah, yeah, in a very pleasant way. Yeah, I don't think there's any mystery to it. They just have uh, more material available than than I had, or certainly than than you had, and and I think it's just growing. You know, so for them, it's more like how to pick and choose between it. But you know, you can hop on Amazon, get any book you want, go on YouTube, see any player that you want analyze hours of their playing you know I would have loved to have even like a tenth of that you know all I had was guitar player magazine oh god but but that was cool Wasn't there a little more that you had no because you know it was before YouTube and it was before you know even at my age you know there yeah a kid in the suburbs you didn't have access to that stuff yet um I think maybe five years later you would have but it was just like, you know, get whatever books you could find at the local music store, which were nothing really, and then, you know, subscribe to a magazine, you know. It's true. And not that you ever could get it out of, out of a book, but, but the books that are written about jazz guitar are few and far between that are really useful, and even 20 years ago, they were almost non-existent. Right, right. I mean, Mick Goodrick's first book probably came out about 20 years ago, and that filled a big hole. Yeah. So that's when I started playing 22 years ago? I was 13, so yeah, 22 years ago. Yeah. So around that time, there, you know, there, wasn't, there wasn't all that much. Yeah. And it was a drag, you know? So let's end with this thought. You're all 
also capable of playing and writing very lyrical, beautiful tunes that have you know more open triadic harmony that uh, is so much a part of the guitar. Talk a little bit about that part of yourself, um, a more romantic part, I would say, if I could label it that way. Sure. Um, I think for me, you know, when I went to school, and Which I was is where, where I went to Berkeley. School? Berkeley. Berkeley, yeah. For four years. Four years, yeah. And it was my first real like, you know, I, I had listened to jazz before then, but this was my first time like, playing it with good players and you know really being in it, and um, the common wisdom at the time was, um, you know, you you're a guitar player. It, it was it was before guitar was really accepted. I think it's changed a little bit now, but still maybe not a hundred percent. It was like, okay, you're, we're going to let you play with us. You're a guitar player, but you, you want to sound like a piano player or a horn player, which was cool. You know, I, I wanted to, to do that in a way, but I also wanted to be a guitar player because, you know, I love the instrument, and there's things that this instrument can do that a piano can't do and that a horn can't do. Um, so kind of is one of, one of those things like we were talking about before. I was just stubborn. You know, I was like, I love the open strings and the open chords, and I don't want to give that up just because I'm playing this uh, other style of music. I still want to play an open E chord and an open G chord and uh, harmonics and, you know, all the cool things that only a guitar can do. you have coming up and what people can look for so sure this is your your, your chance to self-promote um sure i'm happy to do that so basically you know I, i'm not touring with my band until these records are out but uh that'll be pretty soon which is cool so hopefully everyone will dig those records and we'll see you out there on the road but before that um it's a really busy year it's been nuts and it continues to be pretty nuts um one one band that I've really been having a blast with is a, um, a really close friend of mine named Keon Harold. Keon has an awesome album on Sony uh, Sony Legacy called The Magician. Uh, that's not magician or musician, it's magician. Mm-hmm. And we've been rocking all over the world. We just got back from two weeks in Europe. We were in Japan earlier this year. We're going back to Europe several times this year. Um, 
Australia, you know, so that band has, has been busy, and it's a really cool group of cats, Shedrick Mitchell on piano, Earl Travis on bass, Charles Haynes on drums, so we're like family, and uh, that's been a blast. Great. So that'll be, that'll be a lot of the rest of this year, uh, and then next year will be my, my project gets to have a little turn in the spotlight again. Fantastic. All right, thanks so much cool, for talking man. to us. Thanks for coming over, Joel. Thank you.